0: Hello and welcome to fair voice i'm your host hannah syriac and fair voice is affiliated with fair mormon but the opinions expressed here do not necessarily represent the opinions of the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints or fair mormon the organization let's jump in for today first i want to plug the fair mormon 2020 conference because i really want to see you there i want you to go I think you'll enjoy it. So, from August 5th to August 7th, we have the 2020 Fair Mormon Conference, and if you register online, it's $59.95, but you can watch the conference online in real time. You can view the conference on demand immediately after the conference for a year, and you have the opportunity to submit questions to the speakers during the conference, as well as receiving additional perks, such as free shipping, continental U.S. only, on books purchased from the online bookstore during the three days of the conference. You'll also receive recorded Q&As with some of the speakers and downloadable goodies that you will love. So please sign up today. If you are a sustaining member, you can receive a $12 discount. So you, you could become a sustaining member today. Please do it or just sign up for the conference, either one. We'd love to see you there. Some of our speakers include Kim Clark, Bruce Dale, Tyler Griffin, Anthony Sweat, Daniel Peterson, Valerie Hudson, we have a really great lineup. I am sure that you will absolutely love it and I want to see you there. John Gee will be there too, should be interesting. Lots of great speakers and I know, so I'm a master's student. I go to a lot of different academic conferences, religious conferences, you name it, I've been to one. And at these conferences, you know, you take your notes, you write them down, and after the conference, you're like, wait, but there's like these six things that I wanted to know, but I didn't write them down, so what am I going to do? Um, so then you have to basically just chill out, be like, okay, not going to know these things. But the Fair Mormon Conference gives you a different opportunity because we stream it online and because you can watch it on demand for up to a year then you can answer your own questions you can also submit questions to the speakers which i think is really cool but there's a lot of different perks lots of different perks you should do it right now drop what you're doing pause this podcast go online to fairmormon.com and look up 2020 fair mormon conference okay so today's episode i am incredibly excited about it's one of my favorite topics and it should be a really interesting conversation that we're going to have and By conversation, I mean I'm going to be talking, but you're listening, so in that sense, it is a conversation. We're going to be talking about the CES letter, and I'm going to do this in a very interesting way. I have seen a lot of line-by-line rebuttals to the CES letter, and I think those are great, those are fantastic, I love those, I learned so much from those, Um, but I want to bring this into a broader conversation about anti-Mormon literature, the tactics of anti-Mormon literature, and how you as a Latter day Saint can respond to these claims without necessarily knowing what the the like history or the archaeology is or other things like that. So that's what we're gonna talk about today. Um so let's first just dive right into the History of Anti-Mormon Literature. So anti-Mormon literature has been around, as you can imagine, since the time that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was founded. One of the first major works of anti-Mormon literature was the Anti-Mormon Almanac. One of the other main m- m- big works is Mormonism Unveiled, that's by Eber Howe, published in 1834. And there was also the formation of an anti-Mormon party within Illinois, and there's just been so much since. So. Anti-Mormon literature is literature that strives to combat the truth claims of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I will hereafter refer to that church as the Church. Some other early different anti-Mormon literature examples are Mormonism Exposed, Anecdote to Mormonism, Exposure to Mormonism, um, a study in Scarlet. There's, there's a lot of them. There's definitely a lot of them. And nowadays, we see a different kind of anti-Mormon literature in a lot of different senses. Um, I'm going to talk about two really specific examples, and we'll, we'll move on to the CES letter here in a minute. But I think understanding that this has been a long tradition, super important. The two for the, the there are two categories as I mentioned. The first category I would say is a literary category. So you have things. Like Lynn Wilder's book called "Unveiling Grace," which is her conversion out of the church, the church into Protestantism into evangelical Christianity. You have that, you have the God Makers. You have Ed Decker, who, um, so the, the, there is the God Makers is interesting. There's a film, and then there's also a book, and they, I think there's a second one too. So you have a literary and a YouTube sphere around anti-Mormon literature. You have things like Zelf on the Shelf. You have other different anti-Mormon channels that try to point out flaws and truth claims. Um, I would throw in John DeLynn in there at this point um, with Mormon Stories. Um, so these, these websites strive to basically convince you that the church is wrong. Because of cultural things a lot of the time, but also because of various different um, truth claims that they take problem with. The second example for me of anti-Mormonism would be this more street preacher sort of system, so... Um, if you are in Provo, you've, or Salt Lake, or Arizona, these are good areas for it. Um, there's There are groups of people who tend to be evangelical Christians, who will stand outside the temples, who will stand outside General Conference, they'll protest the church, they'll protest the events, and they'll try to convert members to become evangelical a lot of the time. Um, the example of this that I have had the most personal interaction with um I've talked to several people from this organization I have been one of the ones accosted on more than one occasion by people from this organization um Mormonism Research Ministry which is a nonprofit organization that basically tries to um convert people to evangelical Christianity um so th- they do denounce being combative um I am not convinced that that is true from my interactions with them, but they denounce it, which is, we should denounce it. Um, But basically, there are these different anti-Mormon groups that will try to take down the church. And one of the things that has been kind of the rallying point has been this letter called the CES letter. So Jeremy Reynolds, in 2013, wrote a letter to a CES director in which he poses some questions about the authenticity of the Book of Mormon, about Joseph Smith, about various aspects of church history that he claims that he had no awareness of, um, and he takes problem with that. So I want to talk about... Just the general principles of this letter and why the general principles also show that it's wrong. Beyond just, you know, specifics, um, I really like a lot of the line-by-line critiques that you can see. One of my favorites is Debunking the CES Letter, Um, Fair Mormon does a good job. Um, Tarek Delacour does a really good job on this as well. Um, Jim Bennett does a great job on this as well. There's a lot of different line-by-line critiques that you could look into. So we're going to just jump right in. We're just going to jump right in. Um, But first, I always do this. I always backtrack. But I think think it's, you know, I preview and then I backtrack. I guess that's a tactic, right? Yeah, I think that's a good tactic. Let's talk about how the CES letter has gained some traction. So I mentioned, you know, originally published in 2013, updated in 2015, published again in book form in 2017. There has been a lot done with this letter. There have been pass-along cards found in grocery stores, it's been given to missionaries, it's been put in the Book of Mormon, they've written like csletter.com or whatever, I think it's .com, or is it .org? Um, Yeah, it's .org, sorry, I have it open on my computer um, for reference, you know. Um, But csletter.org. So there's been a lot of different parts of the letter. One of the warrants of the letter, though, is that the church has lied to you. And I want to talk about why that's an incorrect warrant, especially... Because of the way that he sets it up. So he says that the Neil A. Maxwell Institute and Fair Mormon do not constitute the church. And I'm going to tell you, only one of those things is true. Um, So the Fair Fair Mormon is independent of the church of Jesus Christ of Mother's Saints. We are, like, if you look on the church's website, they have this little um, nifty-difty, handy-dandy guide to what they consider um, official sources versus unofficial sources. And there's an asterisk system that... Is going on there, um, and you know, fair Fairmount is listed, but we're not—we don't have a direct affiliation with the church. However, the same cannot be said for the Neil A. Maxwell Institute. So, for those of you who don't know, the Neil A. Maxwell Institute is a institute for religious scholarship within Brigham Young University. And because Brigham Young University is owned by the church, and the board is all of the apostles, and Elder Holland frequently addresses. This organization and this institution, and basically more or less approves or disapproves of the way that they're running, I would say that that constitutes an official source. Um, so he sets up this warrant to be the church's lie to um, by omission and by not providing sources, when in fact the Neil A. Maxwell Institute has had many of the claims addressed already that he brings up and also I would like to add fair Mormon did too um, but he he discounts fair Mormon which is fine um, but these the, the answers to these already existed a lot of the time when he brought this up so I think that's an important thing to remember and the this idea that the church lied to you about church history that's a pretty common idea and I, I want to debunk why that's just kind of that's just wrong. So let's talk about the history of Christianity for a minute here. So we're gonna, I'm going to use Protestantism as my example, because I think it's a really good example of this. So if you ask your average evangelical, hey, what do you think of Martin Luther's rampant anti-Semitism and his calling for the destruction of synagogues and the killing of Jews? Most of them would say, I have no idea what you're talking about. What are you talking about? So then y- you would respond and you'd be like, okay, so Martin Luther wrote this treatise called On the Jews and Their Lies, and when he wrote this treatise, he basically promoted very rampant anti-Semitism. And they wouldn't know what you're talking about. You know why? Because churches don't talk about their own history that often. And when churches talk about their own history, they don't necessarily portray the negative parts, and I think that that's the same... With every single religion. So every single religion, um, Catholicism has many schisms, Catholicism has had many atrocities committed in the Crusades, I've written about this, um, too, elsewhere. Um, You have have different religions that have different problems, and the average believer honestly does not care about the history of a church. I don't know any single person that actually cares about the history of Catholicism who's a Catholic. Um, But for whatever reason, members of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints tend to care more about the history of the church, which is a good and a bad thing, and I'm going to talk about why. Um, So it's a good thing. The reason why it's a good thing is I do think that church history is important. I love studying church history, and I think understanding the history of an organization, of an institution, enables you to see why things the way that they are, um, and other things like that. But here's why it's kind of a bad thing. Um, history is made by man, and I think that that's something important to keep in mind. When we hear about the fallibilities and the failures of specific people we often then discredit the entire institution, which is so stupid considering the premise of Christianity. The premise of Christianity is that we are all sinners, we were all going to go to hell, and then Jesus Christ came, and because of his atonement, we can be born again. um, We can have life in him. We can be saved by grace and by works. We can be exalted by grace and by works. We can return to him. We can be made gods. But we can only be made gods through our agency and through the atonement of Christ. That means that we're imperfect. That means that even if we are trying our absolute best, we are going to fall short of the glory of God, we're going to sin, we're going to do all these horrific things. So when we look at church history and we sometimes see things that are unsavory, we see mistakes, we see sin, we see all these blots, all these stains that people who are anti-Mormon will say, this should convince you not to be a member of the church. To them, I would say, and to all other religions, I would say, please just examine your own religion. You know, Let's look at other, like I mentioned a couple examples. When we look at every other religion, there are things that are arguably worse than are in our own church history. Arguably worse. Like, I think, mass genocide. That's probably worse. Um, And I'm not saying that to be entirely sarcastic. There was a little bit of sarcasm there, but I think it's for good reason. Um... I'm saying that as a as a point of contention with the methodology of a lot of things like the CES letter. So the CES letter often focuses on, you know, Joseph Smith and it focuses on polygamy and polyandry and how that might not have been practiced perfectly. I do believe that polygamy was instituted by God um, for a specific purpose. If you think about it, it kind of makes sense. The Saints were kind of struggling to be alive um, and marriage offered women protection. And, you know, there are there are some accounts of women who didn't like polygamy. That is true. There are also a lot of accounts of women who loved polygamy and who thought it was, like, the greatest thing ever and who were very grateful for the opportunity that they had to have more autonomy because of the polygamous system. Um, so I think we have to be pretty balanced in our approach to this. And when we talk about things like polygamy and when the CES letter talks about things like polygamy, I think we have sometimes malign what is said. So I just want to throw that idea out there that with with polygamy, um, I will say, I, I joined the church and as a convert, and I knew about polygamy before I joined. Um, it was kind of a big joke, like, I felt like everyone knew about polygamy, but he kind of asserts that people didn't really know. Um, and I think that that's also disingenuous, too, is there's this premise of anti-Mormon literature, especially with history, not as much with other things, but especially with history, that is... The church lied to you because the church didn't tell you things. The average lay member doesn't really have an import for history into their lives because we're on this earth to try to return back to heaven, right? So what really matters for us in a sense is the scriptures, the doctrine, and modern prophets. Those are the things that are directly important and valuable to our faith. Church history is not. So I don't think the church was necessarily concealing Things I think there's people like John Delynn who promote this narrative that the church intentionally hid their history. I am not actually convinced of that because if we're going to talk about whether or not people, whether or not religions preserve their own history and why they wouldn't, I I think we have to look at every religion and use the same standard for them. I think again, your average Catholic doesn't care about the Crusades, just doesn't. Um, Your average Catholic probably doesn't care about the schisms that happened in Europe. They probably don't care that at many times there was fights over who should be Pope and there was multiple different Popes. They probably don't care about that. They probably don't care about the amount of people that were killed as a result of institutional uh, actions of Catholics. Just like your average Evangelical Christian probably does not care that Martin Luther wanted to basically destroy everything about the Jews. They probably just don't care. And... That's not a slight against a believer. That is not a slight against the religion, even. Um, I wouldn't say that's a slight against the religion. I would say that that's just how humans work. Humans take their own motives, their own intentions with them when they go into a religion. So religions are not going to be perfect, and religious histories are not going to be perfect. And I would say, if the worst things that we can come up with for why the church is wrong within history are the Mountain Meadows Massacre and polygamy, guess what? the church is probably more true than any other church because most religions have a lot worse things going on than that. Granted, we haven't been around as long, but still. Those two things pale in comparison to the history that we see in other different religions. So I like to put that narrative to bed once and for all. I think we need to stop caring about that particular narrative. The institution of of the church doesn't necessarily care about Preserving all of the history because it's not exactly valuable to the believers. I don't particularly care how many wives Joseph Smith had. That doesn't really have an impact on my faith and my ability to comprehend religion because religion is different than history. And let's talk about that for a minute. So when we think about the warrants that we bring to us with religion, that I think a lot of anti-Mormon literature does not do the necessary work to deconstruct, um, we are not trying to know things in an empirical sense. That's not the extent of knowledge within religion. But everything, including, including the CES letter, has this presupposition, such as with the book of Abraham, it criticizes the facsimiles, it criticizes the translation of it, it criticizes, and I would like to just, side note, side note, that's very important. We don't have all of the records for the book of Abraham, so assessing its translation based on the minimal stuff that we have is not exactly fair. We don't even know if that's what Joseph Smith used. We don't know if that fragment is what he used. We don't know if the, like the, the rest of the, like, there's other stuff that would be translated perfectly. So like, Assessing on what we don't have is really dumb. And what we do have are fragments that we aren't even sure that he used necessarily for the book of Abraham. We just know that he had them. That doesn't seem like a very strong case to me for assessing the book of Abraham in a historical light. But anyways, so back to the main point. I just thought that side point was kind of fun. We're going to talk about the history of the book of Abraham fairly soon here. Um, Not on this episode, but on a different episode. When we talk about the difference between religion and history, one of the things that we have to understand is that a religion does not exist to know things by the power of the five senses. That's not the purpose of religion. Um, Because you can discern things with natural experience. Like, I can look outside my window and I can see that the sky is blue. That is something that I can know. But there are other different types of knowledge that exist outside of the scope of religion, sorry, that exist outside of the scope of history that constitute religion. So, take for example the concept of revelation. The concept of revelation within religion is of the utmost importance. If we look at the Abrahamic faiths, all of them deal with this concept of revelation right? because Muhammad believed that the Quran was given to him by revelation. Jew- Judaism holds that prophets in the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament um, were received revelation to direct the people of Israel. We believe and other Christians believe in prophetic revelation as well as in revelation from Jesus Christ in the form of him being the Word. And we believe that scripture is revelation. So There's this additional level of knowledge that comes within religion. And if you're going to make purely historical arguments, as most anti-Mormon literature does, you're not understanding or responding to a warrant of religion, which is the concept of revelation. You need to deconstruct that first. Just as, just as a matter of argumentation, you need to just deconstruct that first. And this is where, this is where we need to understand the concept of by study and by faith. And this is in the Doctrine and Covenants. This is one of the most Beautiful concepts, I think, in the Doctrine and Covenants that I think just shows that the Church is true because there's this understanding of how you should assess historical documents within the concept of religion. So, by studying by faith, yes, we should look into all these things. I'm not one of those people who thinks, like, throw history out the window. I don't think it's of that much importance to your average believer, to be honest with you. I don't think your average believer really cares or should care um, what, what happened to... I don't know. What what Brigham Young did on Wednesday, July twenty-sixth, nineteen eighteen, whatever date. I don't think they should care. But I think what we what we can care about is how we take a methodology and assess the text that we do have. So when when we talk about by studying by faith, that means we look at these documents, we look at the historical import of them, and we assess them as historical documents. Um, we can assess the fact that um, we didn't really have horses, we didn't have evidence for horses, but we can assess that we had evidence for tapirs, okay? This is a perfect example. And we can understand that the words used in the Book of Mormon could reflect our language because it's written for a day, and that could mean, because we have evidence for tapirs, that those tapirs were used as horsey-like things and for us we would just call them horses. We, like, I don't I don't know about you, I had to Google tapir, so I read the CES letter probably like, I don't know, four or five years ago, and I read a rebuttal to it three years ago, and I was like, okay, what the heck is a tapir? Um, I just don't know what a tapir is, so then I had to Google a tapir, and they're, they're actually really cute, just take a minute and Google a tapir. Um, they're really cute animals, but I think this should... But yeah, so now that you've Googled a picture of a tapir, you know that it kind of looks like a horse. It kind of looks like... A, I feel like it looks like a, a cross between a horse and an elephant. So the reason why this is important is because this shows a misunderstanding between what a translation is... This is a misunderstanding of what a translation is and also how to uh, understand anachronism. So what are anachronisms? I just gave you an example of one, and the, the CS letter contains many different examples of anachronisms. So anachronisms are things that don't line up with the time. It means without time. So the alleged anachronisms are horses, cows, oxen, sheep, swine, goats, elephants, wheels, chariots, wheat, silks, steel, and iron. Let me tell you, there's a lot of ways to reconcile this. First off, we don't know where the heck in the Americas the book of mormon took place there are several theories some of the major theories are the great lakes that's a pretty famous one because of the hilcomora being the hilcomora literal hilcomora another famous one is also the um, mesoamerican model there's also a south a- south american models um, there's also a california model we honestly don't know and i think it's really telling that the church as an institution has not said the book of mormon occurs in this place or doesn't occur in this place so that's the first point to make out so we don't we don't know We don't know where it took place. And the second thing is, most of the archaeology that we have uncovered is very minimal compared to the rest that we haven't uncovered. So something important to keep in mind about the way that archaeology works, especially ancient archaeology works, is most of the stuff that we want is lost. So for example, if we look at Greece and Rome, we have lost the vast majority of texts that come from that culture. The things that are most likely to survive in a culture are texts and coins. We don't have the majority of the texts, So the same is true of American archaeology. And when I say America, I mean, I mean the Americas, not the United States of America. But with American archaeology, we don't have the vast majority of it uncovered in the first place, and most of it has probably been lost. And another reason that it's been lost is because of widespread conquest. So if we think about the way that... Native American or indigenous tribes functioned within the Americas is they often would, you know, vie for territory amongst themselves and they would shift territory quite often, but also we had examples of the Spanish and other conquistadors coming in to the Americas and then taking over their land. And when you do this, oftentimes Warfare breeds destruction of materials that we already had. So with respect to Book of Mormon archaeology, with respect to Book of Mormon anachronisms, it's not really fair fair to posit evidence that we don't have as evidence of something not being true. And that's a, that's a major part of anti-Mormon literature, I feel like, is because we don't know various things about the Book of Mormon. We don't know what the coins were looking like, you know? And people will be like, "Wow, well, <laughs> you can't show me a coin, therefore the Book of Mormon isn't true. That's a really honestly dumb point. I, I don't know how else to say that, especially considering we we have proposed geogra- geography models, like Justice Smith had his own geography model, other people have their own geography models. We have proposed geography models, but we don't know... For sure that is true, but I will say we have some evidence for Book of Mormon archaeology, such as Nahum, that is fairly conclusive. Um, so the evidence that we do have is quite strong, even though we don't have a ton of evidence. But this, again, goes back to the difference between religions and history. So within history, you 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 require evidence in order to build a story, right? So you you require text and you require material culture. Material culture is just basically a fancy way of saying objects. And these objects help you understand the context of the text. So say for example we're talking about, um, I don't know, we're going to use Ovid as an example. Ovid wrote a treatise on makeup. So Having objects of what the makeup would look like will help you understand and corroborate the history of what is said in the text. For, for the Book of Mormon, though, because we don't have as much evidence, we can only corroborate specific parts. But that is this, that is true of every ancient text. We don't have everything for every ancient text. But it also shows that the premise that a lot of anti-Mormons work from, even though a lot of the time they tend to be... like. You know, like ex-Mormons tend to be atheists, but at least in my experience, the very famous anti-Mormons tend to be evangelical. Um, the premise that they work from is a religious premise, which makes this kind of ridiculous. Because th- what authenticates the text is not necessarily the historical evidence for it. Because you know, it would be kind of easy to believe in the Book of Mormon if God was like, "Hey, yo, here are every here are all the swords that were buried." Yes. That would be kind of easy to, to believe in. If, if we found every single evidence for the Book of Mormon. We found some evidence, but again, like, if we found every single evidence for the Book of Mormon, there would, there would be no requirement of faith. And faith is one of the underpinnings of religion. Religion believes, again, that you can go outside of your senses, that you can experience the world from, from a spiritual plane. And that the spiritual plane may sometimes compl- conflict with the mortal plane that we experience, but the marriage of the two is what determines truth. So, what I mean by that is, within a spiritual plane, okay, you can say that, you you can take Moroni's promise very, very literally. You can take Moroni 10, you can read it, and you can be like, okay, so if I pray to discern the truth of the Book of Mormon, I will receive a witness. If you really want to receive a witness, you can. I firmly believe that. And that witness can help you examine the evidence that we do have and also can help you reconcile that with the evidence that we don't have. So the problem with a lot of anti-mormon literature is it's not approaching the Book of Mormon on its own terms. It's approaching the Book of Mormon as if it is a merely a historical document. That it is not. When you read things like the CES letter that that rec- basically have this requirement that every single proof of the Book of Mormon that you can possibly have needs to be like borne out, then you're taking the Book of Mormon not on the terms that it demands that it be taken on, and that's a and that's a major problem. You don't read the Bible and and are like, okay, this is just a historical record. There's no theological import of this. I'm just going to read the Bible. You know, people don't do that with the Bible. I have not seen major critics of the Bible do that. You know why? Because it's not the purpose of the Bible. The Book of Mormon very clearly presents itself as a theological, a spiritual text that also has historical elements to that, and we need not sub- subordinate the history to the spirituality or the spirituality to the history and that's what anti-mormon literature always does it takes one or the other it does not take them both and because because if you were to take them both if you were to look at the historical evidence that we do have and you were to look at the theological import of the book of mormon you could not deny the truthfulness of it because we have so much evidence for the existence of it at specific parts, and we have so much theological import that corroborates with the Hebrew Bible, that corroborates with the New Testament in a sophisticated manner, that makes it so that the gospel of Christ is so present in both, and it perfectly understands the law of Moses in a way that the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament have never been able to do. If you look at Paul, Paul, right? Great example from the New Testament. Paul is the one who talks about the most about the law of Moses. When Paul talks about the law of Moses, he struggles to understand how certain parts were fulfilled and how certain parts were not fulfilled. He struggles with circumcision, he also struggles with eating with idols. You can look into this. Uh, sorry, eating eating with pagans in idolatrous temples. He struggles with determining what is okay and what is not okay. There, this has been a major problem within all of Christianity. It's not like Paul just like, you know, figured it out and then everyone was like, cool, Paul figured it out. Let's go on. People have been struggling to understand this. If you pick up any. Any reputable biblical commentary, like you can look at Anchor Bible, you can look at a wide variety of them. If you pick them up and you read what they have to say about the Law of Moses, you will see that there's an element of confusion of what it means for the Law of Moses to be fulfilled. You'll see that there's an element of of confusion of what it means for Jesus Christ to be the new temple. And other things like that. Because that's not completely borne out within the New Testament text. So then... When you have the Book of Mormon that steps in, and you have the Doctrine of Covenants, you have these revealed texts that perfectly clarify the law of Moses on its own terms in a way that could not be constructed by the human mind because it is so complex. Then I think you can't deny the truthfulness of it. Like, take for example temples. We'll go. We'll go down the temple road. Okay. So temples are the ones that a lot of people do criticize within various various anti-Mormon documents. Um, And that's probably because temples are a little bit (laughs) interesting. So um, when we talk about temples, um, one of the major criticisms of it is basically that certain people were denied ordinances of... uh, I'm talking about major uh, like anti-Mormon criticisms. People were denied um, ordinances in the temple for specific reasons at specific times. And also another major criticism is that the temples come from Freemasonry. So um, with the, with respect to the first one, I'm not gonna touch on that because I'm gonna be honest, I don't understand. And I think that that's what we have to say sometimes is, I, I think there's this this there's this there's need to provide an explanation for every single thing um, that's brought up. I don't understand that one, I'll be honest, no clue. Um, I trust God, that's, that's it. Um, but with respect to Freemasonry, um, the, the uh, What is lodged against Joseph Smith, oftentimes, is that basically there are a bunch of Masonic rituals that seem similar to um, LDS Temple of Demma. So, let's talk about why they are similar, but also why that's just not an issue. Okay, so... Um, back to what I said about fulfilling the law of Moses. So one of the really great things about the temple is the temple does fulfill the law of Moses. So the law of Moses basically, um, let, let, let's take a trip to Genesis in a run. So in Genesis, you have the story of Abraham and Isaac. So Abraham takes Isaac up the hill, well, up a mountain, up a hill, whatever you want to call it. He takes him up a mountain, and he's like, okay, I'm going to sacrifice you because he's been commanded to by God. And at the very last moment, then God steps in and says, no, I'll provide the sacrifice. Um, and one of my favorite questions that Isaac asks is, where is the lamb? And Abraham says, "My son, God will see to it that there is a lamb for us to sacrifice." And of course we know that this is we know that this is pointing towards the sacrifice of the Messiah. We know this is pointing towards the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But contained within that idea is this sacrificial substitution. Um, some people call it penal substitution. I don't think that's an accurate way to describe the atonement entirely. I think there's elements that are true, not all of it, but anyways, So, there's this idea of sacrifice, okay? And then we look at the temples, okay? So, in Judaism, temples had three distinct spaces. Um, And this is really important. I'm not going to talk too much about temples because I want to maintain it sacredness, but there's three distinct spaces within Jewish temples. Um, And I'm not saying that our temples are a complete copy of Jewish temples, but what I am saying is that the way that our modern-day temples are constructed, there are three distinct spaces, but also the fulfillment of the sacrifice is spoken about so clearly and is manifest so clearly that it seems a bit too sophisticated for Joseph Smith to have constructed? I don't know. That's my opinion. And, of course, that is an opinion. Like, that's an opinion that I can't always back up with facts. I can say that the facts are, there are immense similarities between LDS temples and between... Temples um, that are Jewish, and I think those specific, those specific similar those specific simil- similarities prove the truthfulness of temples. So, anyways, the, the 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 most frequent things lobbied against the church is that Masonic rituals had elements of temple rituals. So. The reason why this is kind of dumb is because this ignores the fact that Freemasonry also finds its roots within Hebrew tradition. And Jeremy Reynolds does say, Freemasonry has zero links to Solomon's Temple. I think that that is a bit simplistic. So Fair Mormon has said on the website that they, they don't think that you know there's a clear connection. But the reason I think that's simplistic is because that's like saying that a major element of Judeo-Christian culture, of Judeo-Christian knowledge, of which the original Freemasons would have had much more knowledge of than we do because they would have been taught this, they just could completely ignore. And I think that that's kind of dumb because we're in a modern society where we don't have education in a classical sense. And what I mean by that is universities within Europe and universities within America were originally founded for the purpose of studying classics and religion. Classics is Latin and Greek. I happened to get a degree in that. That's where, that's the purpose of the foundation of universities. They were not founded to study physics. They were not founded to study, like, I don't know, the art or sociology or psychology. They were founded to study classics and religion. And There was a much more widespread knowledge of what happened within the Hebrew Bible. People knew their scriptures a lot better back in the day than they do now. People understood the warrants of religion. People would have been familiar with Solomon's Temple. So just because you can't provide historical evidence of that does not mean that that's not a historical warrant. And that's an issue that people often ignore, is that we're living in a different society than they were living in. We're living in a society where we are not nearly as educated in a classical sense as they were. And that's a problem for several reasons. Because then you'll have claims like, oh, well, they, they didn't know about Solomon's temple. but We can't prove that they knew about Solomon's temple. Therefore, they didn't know about it. Therefore, the temple rituals are similar because, because you know, Justice Smith copied them. And I think that that's kind of dumb. Um, just because they probably did know about Solomon's Temple, and I don't know how to prove that except for saying that that's just a general warrant of society. And because Jeremy Reynolds doesn't seem to understand these warrants of society that other anti-Mormons also don't understand or just ignore in favor of, you know, accepting their worldview, then you have historical quote-unquote problems that they bring up that are not actually issues. Does that make sense? I I think that's a great way of looking at it. So the reason that we don't need to care about these historical issues a lot of the time that he says, we didn't know this, or we don't know that they knew this, or there's no evidence for this, is we can't make a truth claim based on lack of evidence. It's not, you you can't disprove the existence of God. Because in order to disprove the existence of God, you would have to prove a negative claim, which you can't do. That's not how logic works. You can only prove the improbability of God. Does that make sense? So you 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 prove positive things and you disprove negative things. But because we don't know the origin of the universe, you can't. We don't know the origin of the universe by science. Based on the terms that those who wish to disprove the existence of God operate under, they can't do it. That's just that's just not how that works. So when we when we think about theological texts, when we think about anachronisms, which And we think about lack of understanding of history, we think about lack of reasoning for specific doctrines, when we think of lack of reasoning for why Joseph Smith had multiple visions that was not explicitly given to us. We can't say that 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 acts as evidence, because that's not evidence. That's just saying something didn't happen. There's a complete difference. Um, that doesn't stand up in a court of law. In a court of law, you need evidence that something did happen in order to prove that something happened. This feels like a very basic point, and you're probably like, well, no kidding, Hannah. Like, Yeah, to prove something happened, you need evidence that it did happen. But when you're confronted, as Jeremy Reynolds does, and as other anti-Mormon authors uh, authors do, with a ton of a ton of questions stacked up on top of each other that are like, we don't know this, we don't know that, we don't know this, we don't know that, or the church didn't say this, or the church didn't say that. These claims are so disingenuous because they assert that what someone doesn't say acts as proof for why something is false, which is not true. Um, that's not how logic works. It's not how reasoning works. So let's talk about the book of Abraham. I, I mentioned earlier the book of Abraham. Um, we're going to talk about it a bit more in depth. But th- there is no other misuse of logic than in the book of Abraham. People always say that, like, you know, the facsimiles, the na- the names were wrong. Joseph Smith identified misidentified different gods. He basically taught an incorrect model within the book of Abraham, all this stuff. Here's why this is wrong. Um, With regards to the gods, I don't really care. We don't have the entirety of the text. It's kind of dumb to be like, oh, he misidentified these things, therefore the entire thing is wrong, because we we don't have the rest of it to identify against, to corroborate against. That would be like saying, well, Paul was definitively a Christian. When we don't have all of Paul, and Paul presents himself as a Jew most of the time. He presents himself as a Jewish Christian. Um, So I think that that's kind of silly. And then another thing that I think is kind of silly is that he has an incorrect view of the universe. Because when we're talking about cosmology within Scripture, I would say that the book of Abraham corroborates with the book of Moses and the book of Genesis in a more sophisticated way, and it also goes beyond the understanding that Joseph would have had. So when we talk about creation, okay, so most Christians and most Jewish people believe in what is called "creatio ex nihilo, which means creation from nothing. But that's not what the church believes. This is really fascinating. The church believes in creation out of pre-existing material, which is the view of the universe that's presented in the book of Abraham. And the reason why this is really interesting and very specific is most people didn't believe that, and that'd be kind of a hard thing to construct. It's hard for you to construct something that you don't understand. Like, try to think of a theory about the universe that is plausible, that is so, like, pretty well-founded, that is pretty consistent, that is consistent across scripture. Because um, you can read Genesis, as Donald Perry does, with um, a verb of organization rather than a verb of creation. Um, you can make the argument that that's what that verb means. Um... Try to come up with something that is that consistent. Consistently propagate it throughout a text when you're barely literate. So, have your 14-year-old sit down and create you a theory of the universe and tell me how it goes. Um, I'd I'd be curious to know. Um, Because... Creating knowledge that you don't have or that's not widespread is infinitely more difficult than criticizing pre existing knowledge. And to us it's pretty obvious to be like, okay, so like if you have creation from nothing, it makes sense that you could have creation from pre-existing material. But to those who did not have that presupposition, to those who were in a society where pretty much everyone believed that creation was from nothing, that God was the first cause, saying that God was not the first cause is a pretty big thing. Because most pagan religions also don't believe that there's creation from pre-existing material. Most pagan religions would say that gods are still the first cause. There's just more than one of them. Um, so things like that, you have to think about the cultural context that Joseph Smith was in and evaluate him against that as well. But a lot of the time people will use these theories that exist within the Book of Abraham, Book of Moses, even the Book of Mormon, and they'll be like, okay, so The church isn't true because this theory doesn't corroborate with the science of knowledge that we do have, and I understand the inclination to do that, but there isn't exactly this monolith of science. I think that's another thing. There isn't a monolith of history, and there isn't a monolith of science. And people will often be like, well, history says, and science says, and philosophy says, but science has multiple different perspectives because even though science has this realm of objectivity, it also has a realm of subjectivity because we don't know certain things and you can use evidence to follow down a trail to come to a different conclusion than someone else reaches. The reason we know this, let's just talk about wine, okay? So wine. Um, There are studies done on wine that says very beneficial for these things. There are studies done on wine that says very not beneficial for those things. Um, Coffee, same deal. Caffeine, same deal. And these are basic examples. These are, these are things that we have seen on the news. Like I, I remember growing up, I would see like one week, coffee fantastic, next week, coffee bad. Um, and we just go back and back and forth. And the reason that that's really important is because that shows us a greater understanding of the way that science works. But for whatever reason, we suspend that understanding when we're talking about things like cosmology, when we're, we're talking about things with respect to religious texts. And that's an understanding we should not suspend. Um, but we do it all the time. Um, so if we, if we refuse to suspend that standard and we see that there are multiple different perspectives, there are multiple different models of the universe, and some of them do actually corroborate with the Book of Abraham, and I would argue that the standard model of physics is one that would corroborate with the Book of Abraham in a lot of different senses, then it's fine. Then you're like, cool, that works. Some don't work, but that's fine. Um, you assess religious claims in the sphere that they demand that they be assessed by study and by faith. Um, So now that we've kind of covered the the claims about the universe, let's talk about the claims about history again really quick. Just want to hammer this point in. You can't prove things by by saying we don't have things, therefore they're not true. And I think that's a really important part about anti-Mormon literature, is that it tries to do that. Now let's talk about the last major frontier of Anti Mormon literature because I think we've covered we've covered a lot of different things and I said I wasn't going to do a line by line criticism I don't think that that's super important to do so I just tried to talk about major themes that I see within the CES letter that also exists within anti Mormon literature um, so the last thing that he does is he writes a conclusion and I want to talk about a couple different things that he does within this conclusion that are just disingenuous to and just wrong. Yeah, there we go, just wrong. So he says, fairer Mormon and these unofficial apologists have done more to destroy my testimony than any anti-Mormon source ever could. I found the version of Mormonism to be alien and foreign to the chapel Mormonism that I grew up in attending church, seminary, reading scriptures, general conference, EFY, church history, tour, mission, and BYU. It frustrates me that apologists use so many words in their attempts to redefine words and their meanings. Their pet theories, claims, and philosophies of men mingled with scripture are not only contradictory to the scriptures and church teachings I learned through correlated Mormonism, they're truly bizarre, end quote. First off, he doesn't provide any evidence that they're contradictory to the scriptures. When you make a claim like that and you just let it stand, especially after you've just battered down your, you know, the church with a hammer, but you didn't actually do any damage because all of your questions contain false information, fun fact, the first question that he asks has an incorrect premise. The errors were not unique to that KJV. But anyways, beyond that, when you, when you make a claim like that, And you let it stand, it's really disingenuous because you have to provide evidence for the claims that you do make. You can't just say scriptures are contrad they say things that are contradictory to scriptures and then be like, bye. You have to point out what they are. But beyond that, he says that basically the the church history and a lot of the older theology does not corroborate with what he understood. The reason why this doesn't matter is because there's a difference between doctrine and there's a difference between teachings. Sorry, but there's a difference between doctrine and teachings. So, for example, he brings up blood atonement. He he was unaware of blood atonement. I, okay, I will say, I was aware of blood atonement before I joined the church. I like I knew what blood atonement was. And I understand that not everyone does, but blood atonement, I was aware with it. I was aware of it. We don't practice blood atonement right now. But here's why it's not that weird. They they kind of practiced a similar form of it in, in the Hebrew Bible. So it, it's in the scriptures? So so there's other things like that that I'm like, okay, like you do have access to that, and that's more on you for not reading the Hebrew Bible than it is on the church for not telling you that we don't practice it anymore. Because w- you don't need to be aware of everything an institution has ever done in order to completely practice in the institution. For example, people from Massachusetts, okay? So I'm from Boston, Massachusetts. There There is a law... That says that you cannot take baths on Sunday. This is a Puritan law. Because they didn't believe that you could do this. They thought that that was a sacrilege. They thought that doing that on a Sunday was really bad. You don't need to know that the Puritans believed that you shouldn't bathe on Sunday in order to live in Massachusetts. What you do need to know is the laws that currently exist. You need to know a little bit about the history, not all of it. And you need to know how to conduct your life. Because as everything everything changes, history gets better over time. A lot of the time, things get... A lot better, and I will say the church. In my opinion, the church has always been amazing. The church has always been true. I don't think the church has really changed that much. I think the eternal, the eternal truth, the doctrines, the the thing, the the underlying warrants of the church have not changed. But there's this perception that every single thing that a prophet says must be true at the time that he says it, which makes it kind of tricky. Because on the one hand, you you do want to respect prophetic authority and Revelation. I respect prophetic authority and Revelation, and I believe that everything that President Nelson says for us is true and is for our time. But I don't think necessarily that everything Brigham Young said is for our time. Otherwise, Brigham Young would be prophet now. And that doesn't mean that he's a false prophet. On the contrary, great prophet, amazing person. I love Brigham Young. But it does mean That the prophets that matter to us most are the ones that are in our time period. So when he says things like, I found their version of Mormonism to be alien and foreign to the chapel Mormonism that I grew up in attending, church blah, blah 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 I have two comments. First off I think there's a lack of personal responsibility. You can't expect the church to teach you everything. You can't expect the church to teach you most things, to be honest with you. The church will teach you what is relevant and necessary for you to re- achieve salvation and exaltation. That's the that's the purpose of the church. The, chur- the church exists in order to facilitate the exaltation of mankind. The church does not exist in order to provide you with all the historical nuances and to provide you with all the answers. Because that's a... Journey. that's a track that you need to go on yourself. Second comment that I would like to make is that the version of our religion being alien to the older version of our our religion um, again I think that's just ingenuous because at different times people need different things. There are things that don't change. We don't believe in a Trinity. We believe in a Godhead. That has not changed. That's that's always been there. We we always have believed that marriage is between a man and a woman, and we've instituted polygamy at specific times. But the but the idea, the doctrine of marriage, has not changed. What has changed are the policies surrounding it, are the practices surrounding it, and being able to differentiate between those two will show you that the church has not changed that much. But because we don't. Focus on those differences, and we don't focus on what is an eternal truth and what is a policy. Then we're often left kind of confused. Okay, moving on. Um, he talks about how he felt betrayed. Um, I, th- I-, I, I am sorry that he feels that way, but I think again we can't expect the church to basically be like, okay, like here's everything, because that's not the purpose of the church. That- that's just antithetical to the purpose. Um, and then the last thing that I wanted to talk about is I'm supposed to sweep... This is a quote from him. I'm supposed to sweep under the rug the inconsistent and contradictory First Vision accounts and just believe anyway. I'm supposed to believe that these men who have been wrong about so many important things and who have not prophesied, seared, or revealed in the much in the last 170 or so years are to be sustained as prophets, seers, and revelators. Side so, note, that's not true. The prophets have revealed a lot. Um, I'm supposed to believe that the scriptures have credibility after endorsing so much... Rampant immorality, violence, and despicable behavior when it says the earth is only 7,000 years old and there was no death before then. Or that Heavenly Father is sitting on a throne, and I'm not going to read the rest of that, um, just because I think it's kind of crass. Um, Blah, 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 blah. Um, That there's actually a a polygamous god who revealed a Warren Jeff-style revelation on polygamy that Joseph pointed to as a license to secretly marry other living men's wives and young girls and teenagers, that this God actually threatened Joseph's life with one of the angels with a sword if a newly pregnant woman didn't agree to Joseph's marriage proposal? Blah, 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 blah. I'm told to put these foundational problems on the shelf and wait until I die to get answers to stop looking at the church intellectually, even though the glory of God is intelligence. Ignore and have faith anyway. End quote. Here's the thing. Pretty much everything that he brought up in this section has nothing to do with doctrine and everything to do with mankind. And that's a really important point. He does not criticize the doctrine of the church. He criticizes the history of the church. He criticizes the practices of the church. And this is what anti-Mormon literature does a lot of the time. I'm not going to say all the time. I've read some criticisms of our doctrine, but he doesn't do that. He but he thinks that because there are some inconsistencies, because there are things that we don't frankly understand because we don't have all the accounts and we also don't know contextually completely what was going on. Um, he thinks that because all those things exist, therefore the church isn't true. And the reason why that is a fallacious claim, not only because it it is a fallacious claim because of what we talked about with religion and history and how he's approaching this from a purely historical point of view when religion demands that you approach it from a religious point of view, obviously. Um, but the reason why this is incorrect is because all of his claims are, we don't know this, therefore it's not true. And that is the premise of anti-Mormonism. The premise of anti-Mormonism is we don't have evidence, therefore it's not true. Or the evidence that we do have, we're just going to ignore that, and we're going to talk about what we don't have. That is what I have seen in all anti-Mormon literature. I've read it all. Well, not at all. I've read most of it. Um, you know, I'm writing a book on it. I've read, I've read a ton of it. I've watched all the videos that I could find on the internet, literally all of them. I'm subscribed to all the channels, and I will say... After spending so much time reading them, I will say, there is not a single good argument against the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and here's why. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints presents itself almost perfectly in a way that I think protects itself against these claims, and in the way that you protect yourself against these claims, too, is by you understanding this premise. And it's the by-study-and-by-faith premise. So we're going we're gonna to just explore that for a minute, and this will be our devotional um, for, for the day. I, I thought it was a good segue, and I'm going to end on, we're going to do this devotional, and I'm going to end by talking about how I approach anti-mormon literature as someone who reads it all the time, Um, because that's a really interesting position to be in. Um, So, DNC 88 is one of my favorite sections. Um, So just open up your scriptures to DNC 88, and I'm going to read you a few verses. So we're going to read 117 to 126. Therefore, verily I say unto you, my friends, call your solemn assembly as I have commanded you, and as all as all have not faith, seek ye diligently, and teach one another words of wisdom. Yea, seek ye out of the best books, words of wisdom. Seek learning, even by study and by faith. Organize yourselves, prepare every needful thing, and establish a house, even a house of prayer, a house of fasting, a house of faith, a house of learning, a house of glory, a house of order a house of God, that your incomings may be in the name of the Lord, that your outgoings may be in the name of the Lord, that all your salutations may be in the name of the Lord, with uplifted hands unto the Most High. Therefore, cease from all light speeches, from all laughter, from all lustful desires, from all your pride and light-mindedness, and from all your work and doings. Appoint among yourselves a teacher, and let not all be a spokesman at once, but one, l- l- let one speak at a time, and let all listen to his sayings, that when all have spoken, that all may be edified of all, and that every man may have an equal privilege. See that ye love one another. Cease to be covetous. covetous. Learn to impart one to another as the gospel requires. Cease to be idle. Cease to be unclean. Cease to find fault one with another. Cease to sleep longer than is needful. Retire to thy bed early, that ye may not be weary. Arise early, that your bodies and your minds may be invigorated. And above all things, clothe yourselves with a bond of charity." As with a mantle, which is the bond of perfectness and peace, pray always that ye may not faint until I come. Behold, and lo, I will come quickly and receive you unto myself. Amen. End quote. So, there's a lot to unpack there, here that I think can help us as we look towards anti-Mormon literature. When we look towards anti-Mormon literature, I think we need to think a lot about verse 119. A house of prayer, fasting, faith, learning, glory, order, and God. The inherent fallacy that I see with most anti-Mormon literature is it doesn't inherently ask you to seek truth in the way that the Bible demands you to seek truth. I had an interesting conversation with an evangelical pastor that I'll share here. Um, I was talking to an evangelical pastor and I asked him, and I was like, hey, so why is the Bible true? And he said, well, the Holy Spirit authenticates it, it's breathed out by the Holy Spirit. And because of that, I can tell by the Holy Spirit whether or not it's true. I was like, cool. So, I agree. Um, I think the Book of Mormon is true because of the power of the Holy Spirit. And he was like, that's not possible. Um, Scripture is not self-authenticating. And and then I asked him again, like, how do you know that Scripture is true? And then he was like, by revelation. And the problem is, most people will say revelation is only fine when it corroborates with their specific worldview. And I would say that the Gospel doesn't require you to do that. The Gospel asks you to pray with real intent. The Book of Mormon asks you to pray with real intent. The Bible doesn't do that. The Book of Mormon asks you to pray with real intent to determine the truthfulness of it. So it asks you to set aside your presuppositions. It asks you to basically determine this truthfulness by study and by faith. After you have read the book, that's the study part, then... It asks you to pray about it. That's the faith part. And because of the structure that our theology presents that's unique to our theology, I think this shows an element of truthfulness to it. it's not like the Bible, which says that it's self-authenticating, and you read it, you'll know. Um, The Book of Mormon says, no, read it, think about it, put effort into it. Try to work to see if it is true, and you will determine that it is true. And I think that that's really beautiful. Um, and I, I think another thing that I want to bring up about what we just read—I really, I love this section, um, verse one twenty-five. And above all things, clothe yourselves with the bond of charity, as with a mantle, which is in the bond of perfectness and peace. I think the fact that there that in the, so this revelation is given through the prophet Joseph Smith at Kirtland, Ohio. I think the fact that the prophet is relaying that the bond of charity as a mantle is the significant part of determining truth, right? Because he's been given specific instructions for how to basically know truthfulness of things. The fact that charity is still the center shows the Christ centered theology that Joseph Smith operates under that he can't have constructed himself. It's just too perfect in my opinion, but also it shows the difference between I think anti-Mormon literature and the the literature that we do need to be reading. Um, I don't find it loving to completely trash on people who you don't know. I don't find it loving to criticize people and say that these people reflect upon the institution. I think that that is a postmodernist fallacy. Instead of examining the actions of individuals and condemning them as wrong, anti-Mormon literature seeks to basically say, because there are flawed people in the church, therefore the church isn't true. That, to me, is a logical fallacy, and it's also not examining what actually matters. And what actually matters is the doctrine, and the doctrine is definitely true. Um, So beyond that, how can we as people, how can we as a church, respond to the anti-Mormon claims that we receive? Because you read a thing like the CES letter after you haven't read that much about church history after you've gone to church and you've accepted a lot of the doctrine and you get kind of freaked out because you're like, hey, like, there's, this, there's so much material here, I don't know what to do, all these things seem really shocking and really startling. I think one of the most important things to do is to take a step back and to think about what a church is. A church is not history. A church is not a place where you... It's not a social club where you discuss Joseph Smith. It's not a place where you discuss... Brigham Young necessarily, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't talk about those things, I'm just saying that that's not the primary purpose of it. The primary purpose of church is to teach you correct doctrines and principles so that way you can govern yourselves, so that way you can teach your children the gospel of Christ, and that way you can receive ordinances and make covenants that are integral to your exaltation. None of that is criticized by the CES letter. None of it. That's none of it. He says that he he he, he says that he likes chapel Mormonism. And the reason why the church is structured the way that it is is because what really matters is the relationships that we developed with Christ, the relationships that we developed with our families. And we develop those relationships through ordinances and covenants. What matters is the priesthood. What matters is the scriptures. What matters is how does this apply to you. It doesn't necessarily matter how it applied to people 200 years ago. And it's fun to read about it, but it doesn't necessarily matter for your own exaltation. So taking that step back. And looking at the truth that we do have. Looking at the scriptures that we do have. Looking at how there is a difference between the Holy Spirit and confirmation bias. Looking at how there have been times in your life, I am sure of it, where you have read something and you have known that it is true. Where you have read scriptures and you have felt not just warm, fuzzy feelings. Where you have felt it in your mind and your heart as we're instructed in DNC. Where you have not just felt good, where you have felt the Spirit, where you have felt godliness. There have been times in your life when you have have had, had prophecies of things that are to come that have seemed so illogical and unbelievable, but for some reason you believed it, and for some reason it happened. Those are the moments that you turn back to when you're evaluating a religion. You don't necessarily turn back to historical facts that are irrelevant to the doctrine of Christ, because that is using something that is not related in order to prove D- to prove something is not true. There's so many logical fallacies, there's so many methodological, th- methodological inconsistencies and problems with doing that. What matters wi- within religion is the same thing that matters within our own lives. How does it apply to us? So that's my basic discourse on anti-Morban literature um, as a start, um, and now we're going to transition t- to talking a bit about Come Follow Me this week. This week's Come Follow Me was really epic. So it was Alma 36 to 38, and I just really liked it. Um, I'm by myself today. Um, I was supposed to have someone on, but 60 things happened. So here we are. Um, But don't worry, we have someone for next week already planned. So that should be good. So... Alma 36 is really, really epic. Um, The reason being is it talks about my favorite concept within the church, which is the atonement. Um, And I wanted to highlight a couple of verses for you, then just talk about it a bit briefly. Um, This podcast is already a little bit longer than usual, so I apologize for that. But I think we we did some good things so far. So one of the things that he says um, that I really, really like is if we look at verses... Uh, verses 3 and 4. And now, O my son, Healman, behold, thou art in thy youth, and therefore I beseech of thee that thou wilt hear my words and learn of me, for I do know that whatsoever shall, put, oh, who shall ever shall put their trust in God shall be supported in their trials and their troubles and their afflictions, and shall be lifted up at the last day. And I would not that ye think that I know of myself, not of the temporal, but of the spiritual, not of the carnal mind, but of God." And I think this actually fits in really well to what we were just talking about. This idea of spiritual knowledge and this idea of spiritual comfort. And I think a lot of the time we want to have so much control over our own lives in an logical sense. We want to be able to look at our lives and be able to build a plan from what we know. But a lot of the time, the things that we need to plan on are the things that we are unaware of or that we don't think are going to actually happen that are told to us. When I look at my own patriarchal blessing, so... My patriarchal blessing promises me some very specific things and is very, very sacred to me. And there have been so many times where I've looked at it and been like, okay, like, how can I know of this? How can I know that it's true? How can I know that it's logical when it seems so illogical? But what we're told is that I know this of myself, not of the temporal, but of the spiritual, not of the carnal, but of God, because... There are going to be times in our lives when God tells us things that are spiritual knowledge, that are not consistent with the temporal reality of the world, that are not consistent with our mortally bound logic, but are consistent with him because he transcends space and time, because he understands what's going to happen in our lives, because he sees it so clearly when we can't see it clearly. And that's something that I think is really important about the atonement, is the atonement Exists covering everyone, not just the people going forward or the people going backward. It covers everyone because Christ understands us and Christ understands us in a very infinite way. And I also just really like, I really like his his cry out um, at the middle-ish um, of the end. Yes, the middle-ish of the end. Um, where he says, and I'm reading from, where there. is, I'm reading from verse 18. O Jesus, thou Son of God, have mercy on me, who am in the gall of bitterness, and am encircled about by the everlasting chains of death. And now, behold, when I thought this, I could remember my pains no more. Yea, I was harrowed up by the memory of my sins no more. Jesus has the capacity to enable us to forget what we don't want to remember. And I think that that's a really important part too. So when we have spiritual knowledge, a lot of the time when it conflicts with our logical knowledge, we can be like, okay, how do I how do I stop having anxiety over this? How do I stop worrying over this? But we can pray and we can ask the Father and we can recognize that we are in a limited state, but He is unlimited. We can recognize that there is a gap between us and Him and that He is the one who closes the gap. We move towards Him as far as we can, but he walks with us the entire way. We can recognize that there's that distance, and we can pray and we can ask God to help us, to have mercy on us, and God can enable us to remember our mortal failures no more. And I I also really like the closing verse of this one, and so this is in verse 30. But behold, my son, this is not all. For ye ought to know as much as I do know, that inasmuch as ye shall keep the commandments of God, ye shall prosper in the land. And ye ought to know also, that inasmuch as ye will not keep the commandments of God, ye shall be cut off from his presence. Now this is according to the word. I think that this is something that can be kind of hard for us to understand. Because we often think about how prosperity is a temporal thing and prosperity is a fiscal thing. But prosperity in a gospel context I think almost always is joy in Christ centered. Right? President Nelson says that we can have joy regardless of our circumstances. And I think what is say- what is saying here is that God will allow us to flourish but the flourishing will look different than the flourishing that we might construct. God will allow us to have the blessings that he promises us but Maybe not the blessings that we have wanted. Um and the last thing that I wanted to bring up from Come Follow Me, just because you know it's just me and it's been it's been a little it's been a hot second here, and I don't wanna have you guys keep going for too long. Um I really like Alma 37. There's two verses in them, um, well, three verses technically, that I really liked. So um we're gonna start with six and seven, and then I'll skip down to the next verse that I like. Now you may suppose that this is foolishness in me, but behold I say unto you, that by small and simple things are great things brought to pass. And small means in many instances doth confound the wise. And the Lord God doth work by means to bring about his great and eternal purposes. And by very small means the Lord doth confound the wise and bringeth about the salvation of many souls. And then skipping down. For it is as easy to give heed to the word of Christ, which will point you a straight course to eternal bliss, as it was for our fathers to give heed to this campus, which would point unto them a straight course to the promised land. And then I'm going to just read one more. O my son, do not let us be slothful uh, because of the easiness of the way, for so it was with our fathers, for so it was prepared for them, that if they would look, they might live. Even so it is with us, the way is prepared, and if we look, we may live forever. When it's talking about small and simple things... I think a lot of the time we read this as reading scriptures or praying, and that's a great interpretation, but I also think the small and simple things that we do to serve other people is what this verse is talking about. The small and simple things like, I don't know, you're talking to someone about the family proclamation in the world, and that's a hard topic for a lot of people, I mean, You could look at the comments on anything that I've posted about it. Um, It's a hard topic for a lot of people and for understandable reasons. And you could simply say that you have a testimony of it. You could simply say that. You can simply, when everyone seems around you to be doing immoral things, choose to be moral. You could simply be kind to someone who you pass by. These are small and simple ways that the Lord brings salvation to man because salvation is developed through a personal relationship with Christ, which is developed through feeling the love that Christ has for us because all relationships with Christ and all relationships in this life that matter are covenantal. And in order to establish covenants, you need a reason. And I think that reason is often love. So the Lord God brings to pass his great and eternal purposes by small means. Those small means might seem really insignificant for us. I've thought of times where I've had to wait and that has felt like a very small means because I'm not doing anything. What I'm doing is not doing. What I'm doing is inaction and that's that's a position that we're often in. Is We're in a position of inaction and that feels like something that is really insignificant but by that small means the Lord can bring about his great and eternal purposes and it confounds the wise because if we're wise we don't rely on God. If we're wise, we aren't seeing his plan and we're seeing our own. And then going down to the other verses that I read that I think really connect with these, um, is it's really easy when we just focus on Christ. It's really easy when we don't allow other influences to permeate our minds. It's really easy when we look to the revelation that we have received, when we look to the answers or prayers we have received, when we look to the scriptures, when we read our patriarchal blessings, when we stay true to what we do know, and what we do know comes from God, as opposed to looking at what we don't know, as opposed to gaining anxiety because we don't understand something. What we don't understand is that we don't understand how things fit into this mortal picture that we have. But what we can understand is that Christ is the one who understands. And that's, and that's what we need to do. It's like a parent with a child. I'm positive I gave my parents a run for their money several times with many questions that I asked. And I'd be like, why this, why that, why this, why that? And my parents would understand things a lot better than I, I did. And some of the questions that I asked were probably complex, but my parents could say, I understand this, and I'm asking you to trust me. That this is the way that things should be. And I think that's what Christ asked for us. Is for us to sacrifice not just our will, but sacrifice our sensibilities. Because there are things that we can know in this life, and there are things that make sense in this life. But there are plenty of things that don't. But we can have that feeling of understanding without actually understanding if we look towards the words of Christ. And this is a Sunday special, so I wanted to just... Read my testimony of Christ that I wrote down yesterday and we'll close on that because, you know, Jesus is great and I would just like to just close on that note and I think that should be good. So I'm pulling that up right for you now. Why do I believe in Christ? I sin. I fall short of the glory of God. I cringe at past statements and actions. I doubt elements of my faith. I ask if there is no other way and I sometimes shrink away from God's plan for me. But he's always there. He's not an abstraction or a thought in my head or an idea of a person. He's there. He walks with me. I feel him beside me. I cannot see him, but I know he is there. I have felt his presence so strongly at specific points in my life and cannot deny these experiences as pointing towards the existence of a very real Savior, even Jesus Christ. He offers me forgiveness. He offers me change. He takes the effort I give him and creates something more beautiful and perfect than I can ever construct. His atonement gives me life more abundantly than the one I had before. It does not make it easy. He does not take away the struggles I face, but he walks with me. He reaches me where I am at and shows me that with him I can walk back to my Father in heaven. He instructs me that my faith matters more than my fears and that I will never be punished for following my Savior. He asks me to trust him, and then he leads me. He asks me to believe him, and then he blesses me. He asks me to endure, and then he delivers me. And he taught me how to balance compassion with righteousness, obedience with charity, and faith with hope. Through the Holy Spirit, I have heard whispers of his love and plan for me. My Savior saved me, me, Hannah, and has shown me that exaltation results from my efforts consecrated by his atonement. He has come to me comforted me and shown me the specific details of my life, ensuring me that all will be well as I learn to become the person His atonement can design me to become. I believe in Christ because of my relationship with Him, because it is the most real relationship I have. He knows me better than anyone and has given me the glorious opportunity to get to know Him. As I have sacrificed more and more of my will to the Lord's and prayed for change within myself, He has enabled His change." Through his one true church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, he has given me the blessed opportunity to partake of divine nature and grace through temple covenants and ordinances. Through his atonement, he has shown me... The happiness, joy, and love that come naturally as a result of believing the gospel of Christ, even when circumstances may reflect differently. He does not tell me to accept myself and my sins. He tells me to accept myself from my sins. He invites me to see that through sacred ordinances and covenants, through living up to these covenants, through my relationship with him, he can deliver me from my sins and my worth is inherent to me because God exists. Indeed, I can have confidence in the Lord because of the Savior's atonement. I love him with every fiber of my being. I know he lives. I know that I will see him again. And I know at that moment, I will fall to my knees in gratitude and worship for the one who changed me, comforted me, healed me, saved me, and showed me that the me or the I am within me has divine potential. I have faith that he will come again. I know know the kind of God he is and everything that is promised to us will be fulfilled because he is perfect and we can be perfect in him. (laughs) I testify of the truthfulness of what I have said. I testify of the truthfulness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I testify that this is one true church. I know that the Book of Mormon is true, and I know that prophets and revelators have restored these truths back to our earth. I know that the priesthood of God is real. I know that it is true, and I know that it is through obedience to commandments and through developing relationships through sacred ordinances and covenants that we learn to become like our Savior. I know that we need to sacrifice our will to His, and I know that we need to believe and trust in the church as it exists. I know that the church is true and perfect in the sense that Christ is at the head of it. And I know that as we strive to change ourselves, as we strive to understand not to be understood, that God will enlighten us with the understanding that we need. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.